Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Uh, turn in your Bibles, please, to Romans chapter 2, <clears throat> verses 17 through 29 is our text this morning as we continue our study of the greatest letter ever written, the book of Romans. Last week we departed from this series briefly, and I gave a message as a response to the Supreme Court ruling on gay marriage a few weeks ago. And um, you can hear that on the web, by the way, if you're interested or if you missed that. And in that message, I mentioned that we are entering into a new era in the life of the church and in the history of our nation. We're entering, um, I think, a, a period of time when it's going to be even harder to be a Christian than it has been before. Things are changing. They have been changing, and they will likely continue to change. Christians are likely to be more hated than liked, likely to be regarded as more abnormal than normal, likely to be more ridiculed than respected. And so the message was given in part to prepare us for that, and I gave my critiques of that Supreme Court ruling, and I think it's only fair that if we are going to focus our attention outwardly to the world and offer up our criticism for the way our culture is going, that we ought to be willing to turn our attention inward and offer criticism to ourselves, to examine ourselves, the church, the people called out of darkness to be a witness for the glory of the gospel. And it just so happens that this passage in Romans 2 will lead us into that kind of self-examination, that kind of consideration, because what this passage talks about is the problem of hypocrisy. And you don't have to be around for too long to know that that's a very common and regular accusation, criticism of the church, that in the church there are so many hypocrites, so many people won't be a Christian, won't join a church because of all the hypocrites. It was Gandhi who said once, you know, I like your Christ, but I don't like your Christians because your Christians are so unlike your Christ. There's a guy named uh, Bill Maher, who is a <clears throat> comedian, a very liberal comedian, no friend of Christianity at all. He's a talk show host, and I found a YouTube video of Bill Maher talking about the hypocrisy of Christians. And he goes through this long list of all the ways that he sees that Christians are inconsistent and hypocritical in their behavior and in their beliefs. And then he says near the end of it, he says, you know what, I can say this because I'm a non-Christian, just like most Christians. Wow, that stings, doesn't it? <laughs> he goes on to say, you know, if you claim to be a Christian and you are just ignoring the commands of Jesus, he says, you're not a follower of Jesus, you're just a fan. I mean, he sounded like a Christian preacher. It was a rebuke, a challenge to the Christian church that I think we need to hear, I think we need to listen to, particularly as we enter into this kind of new era of, uh, of the post-Christian age in our country. Well, this is Paul's argument here in Romans chapter 2. Uh, he's pointing out the hypocrisy 
of those in the church. And just to give you a little review, Paul actually began this whole argument all the way back in chapter 1, verse 18, where he said, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of, of men. What Paul's doing here is laying out a case that the wrath of God rightfully rests upon everybody without exception. And so he's just been going through making this case a little bit at a time. In, in chapter 1, he made the case that the wrath of God is rightfully resting upon Gentiles, the non-religious people, those outside the church. Even they deserve the wrath of God. And then in chapter 2, he moves to make the case that even religious people, that is Jews, Jewish people, as Romans refers to the Jews, they're talking about those who are part of the community of faith, those who are considered God's people, religious people. I'm using that term loosely to describe them, but what Paul says is that even they are under the wrath of God. And so that's the argument he makes beginning in chapter 2. And now he concludes chapter 2, starting with verse 17, going to the end of the chapter, turning up the heat on religious hypocrisy. And he's doing this because he wants to expose the fact that every one of us, without exception, whether we're religious or not, whether we're Jewish or Christian, no matter what our religion, no matter what our lifestyle, we all are in deep and dire need of a Savior. All of us are under the wrath of God apart from Christ. And what Paul wants to do is bring you to the point so that you would see that you need Jesus as a Savior and you would turn to Him and trust Him for salvation. So, Paul's comments here are, are pretty stinging as well, uh, just like Bill Maher's comments. So, let's read this. Please stand and um, let's allow the Holy Spirit to use His Word to... Um, speak truth to us now. Romans 2, 17 through 29. Paul says this, if you call yourself, and by the way, when you see the word Jew here, I think you can kind of plug in Christian, and you'll get the point that Paul is seeking to make. But if you call yourself a Jew, and rely on the law, and boast in God, and know His will, and approve what is excellent, because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For, as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So, if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, 
not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Lord, would you please open our eyes to behold the truth that you have for us in this passage. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, let's begin with just a very, I think, obvious question. Before we go any further, we should just seek to answer this. What is hypocrisy? As we consider the problem of hypocrisy, particularly in the church, among the religious community, what do I mean? Uh, the word hypocrisy actually comes from a Greek word, uh, Greek root, for the word actor. So hypocrisy comes from this idea of putting on a display, acting like somebody different than you are. Hypocrisy is when you pretend to be something that you're not. Here's uh, the dictionary definition of hypocrisy. It's the pretense of having a virtuous character or moral or righteous beliefs that one does not really possess. That's hypocrisy. You're putting forth a public persona of yourself that is very different than the way you actually are inwardly. You're, you're play-acting. You're putting on a show for others. Jesus had a lot to say about hypocrites in the Gospels. The Pharisees were his contemporaries, often critical of him. And Jesus would point out their hypocrisy in many different places. Here's in Mark 7, 6. He's referring to the Pharisees, he says, this people, they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. That's hypocrisy. I'm going to talk like I'm a Christian. I'm going to give all the right words. I got the lingo down, but my heart is cold and distant to God. In Matthew 23, <clears throat> again, speaking to the Pharisees, Jesus says, so you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So that's hypocrisy. And what Paul does here is he goes into some detail to show us what it's like to be a hypocrite and what are the basic components and elements of hypocrisy. And there are three things I want to show you from this text that seem to be present in the typical hypocrite. And the first one is this. There is a kind of intellectual detachment. Look what Paul says here in verse 18. He's talking to the Jew, talking to the religious person. You call yourself a Jew. He says that in verse 17. Then in verse 18, you, you know his will. You are instructed from the law. Jump forward to verse 20. Not only have you been instructed, he says to this religious person, but you are an instructor yourself. You instruct Foolish people, you are a teacher of children. And in the law that you have, Jewish person, religious person, the law that God has given you, you have the embodiment of knowledge and truth. So there's a certain intellectual component here that Paul is talking about in this hypocritical person. It's the person who just loves intellectual stimulation. The person who is just constantly eager to gain more knowledge. The person who comes to church and hears sermons just to learn some new idea, just to get some new doctrine down. The person who comes because he or she wants to gain an arsenal of arguments to use in their next dialogue or dispute so they can win and not lose. 
This is a component of hypocrisy. That is where you learn about God, you learn about the Bible, but it's merely intellectual to you. It's all cerebral. And the things that you have learned have never really knocked on the door of your heart. There's a disconnect between your heart and your head. That's what Paul is talking about here to this Jew. You've got the law. You know the law. You teach the law. It's the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You're so intellectual. You're so smart. But he's going to go on to say you're a hypocrite. So here's another component. He talks about boastful complacency. So if you look at verse 17, you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law, and look, and you boast in God that this is, this is something that you're proud of. I am one of the good people. I'm one of the religious people because God has given me the law, and I understand it, and I have so much to give to others, and there's just this kind of very exalted opinion that the hypocrite has of himself. He goes on, and he says in verse 19, you're sure you're sure that you yourself, you're, you're a guide to the blind. You're a light to those who are in darkness. You're the one who has all the answers. You're the one that everyone looks to to get instruction. The problem isn't with you. The problem is always somebody else. That's a mark of a hypocrite. It's a person who is self-satisfied, a person who is proud of having all the answers, a person who wants to offer others help but never considers that he or she needs the help, a person who thinks, I've got nothing to learn, I already know it, a person who looks at Matthew chapter 5 where Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, and they have no idea what that means. They have no clue about what it is to be poor in spirit, to be brokenhearted over your sin, to see that you need a Savior that it doesn't matter how much you know if you don't trust Jesus. Boastful complacency leads to hypocrisy. And then the third thing is what we typically understand to characterize hypocrisy, which is inconsistent behavior. So Paul goes on. He starts in verse 21, and he says, You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? See, that, that's the essence of hypocrisy, isn't it? You are standing up teaching other people, but you're not applying the teaching that you're giving to others to yourself. You preach against stealing. Well, do you steal? You say that someone shouldn't commit adultery. Do you commit adultery? You, you see what he's saying? These are examples of hypocrisy. People who are very strong in their teaching about things that are wrong, but behind the scenes when nobody is looking, they go out and do those things without any hesitation or compunction. He adds one more here. While um, he says uh, at the end of verse 22, you who abhor idols, do you rob temples? That's a bit of a, a difficult phrase. Uh, I, I think what Paul means there is that um, there actually was a common occurrence in that day where pagan temples, which would be filled with very expensive items, would sometimes be robbed. People would go in and take those materials and go sell them to make a profit. And what Paul is saying here is, okay, you're talking against idolatry, but then would you go into a pagan temple and <laughs> steal stuff and go and sell it and make a profit? Wouldn't that be the height of hypocrisy? 
These are all just specific examples that Paul is given of the way a hypocrite acts. And then it's all summed up in verse 23. You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. And that really sums it up. That's kind of the climax here of Paul's um, argument about hypocrisy. You're boasting in the law. You're presenting yourself as this religious, godly person, and yet, with no hesitation and on a regular basis, you're breaking the law. The way to sum this up is a cliched phrase we've all used many times. You don't practice what you preach. That's my question to you, friends. Do you practice what you preach? Parents, do you practice what you preach, what you teach in your household? Uh, this is particularly challenging to, to teachers and preachers because we're, we're the ones doing all of the, the speaking and all the teaching. We're the ones up here telling you how to live. Man, the temptation and the ease to fall into hypocrisy is very great for teachers and for preachers. Do you practice what you preach? That's what Paul is pointing out here. This is a problem in the church, isn't it? There's lots of people in the church who love to be called a Christian, who love to be called a godly person, but have very little interest in godliness. Two things I want to say by way of kind of application here, just by way of, of implication. To the unbeliever, as we're talking about the nature of hypocrisy here, to the unbeliever, to a person like Bill Maher, I, I would just say this, and, and maybe you're one, one of these kinds of people. You're, you're saying, you know, okay, I'm just here today because somebody brought me, but I'm never going to be part of this church because the church is so full of hypocrites. And I can't stand hypocrisy. And I would just say to you, we completely agree with you. You are right. We don't like hypocrisy any more than you do. I would say that to Bill Maher. Bill Maher, I fully agree with you. I think here's the difference. That as Christians, what we're at least trying to do is, is acknowledge that it's true of us. We're acknowledging, yes, hypocrisy exists. I would want to say to Bill Maher, do you acknowledge that there's any hypocrisy in your heart? Because if you don't, you're the very kind of person that Paul is pointing out and criticizing and challenging in this passage, the person who's blind to the inconsistency in his own behavior. If you are a person who doesn't like hypocrisy, at least understand that, that the Bible agrees with you. You're against hypocrisy. So is the Bible. You're against hypocrisy. So is God. You're against hypocrisy. So are most Christians. We join you with that. So why don't you join us? Because there's always room for one more hypocrite in the church. So that's my word to the unbeliever. To, to the believer, I would say this, to try to clear up some, some misunderstanding here. Um, I, I think the, the person really that Paul is going after here is, is the person who's completely blinded to the inconsistency in his or her behavior. He's probably talking about an unregenerate person. So I'm guessing the majority of you are Christians. And so I'm not sure that Paul would consider you to be the target of what he's talking about. But nonetheless, we, we all have this tendency toward hypocrisy. All of us do. Um, Robert Redford was once um, spotted in a hotel lobby, and somebody went up to him and said, Aren't, are you the real Robert Redford? 
And he said, only when I'm alone. Really, only when we're alone are we the real, am I the real Bob? Because to some degree, we're all kind of putting forth a certain public persona for the sake of gaining the acceptance and approval of others. So, to the believers in here, I would say, you know, here's something that believers will sometimes say. I hear Christians talk like this sometimes. They say, um, you know, I'm not sure I, I want to go to church because uh, I'm, my heart's not really into it. And so if I go to church when my heart's not really into it, that makes me a hypocrite. Or I'm not really going to read my Bible, or I'm not going to pray, or, or I'm not going to give money to the church because my heart's not into it. And if there's a gap between my feelings and my actions, that makes me a hypocrite. Friends, if you've thought that way, if you've stayed home on some Sunday morning because you think it's going to make you a hypocrite to come when you don't want to come, I want to correct that. That's not hypocrisy. That's faithfulness. Coming to church when you don't want to, reading the Bible when you don't want to, praying when you don't want to. That's what godly people do. Hypocrisy is not the gap between your feelings and your actions. It's the gap between the public persona and the private persona. It's the gap between the fake act that you're putting on for the benefit of gaining approval from others and the real true condition of your heart, which is distant and cold toward God. That's hypocrisy. It's like living a double life. And again, summed up here in verse 23, you boast in the law, but you dishonor God by breaking the law. So that's what hypocrisy is. But let's go on to the second point and consider what, what is really the problem with it? What, what makes it so, um, so bad? What, what makes it so distasteful? And there's a couple things here. One is there's a problem before the world, particularly, for, for, for hypocrites, for religious hypocrites. And if you just look at verse 24, look what Paul says here. As he continues with this argument, as it is written... As a result of you who are boasting in the law but then breaking it, as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. I mean, that's, that's basically a description of what Bill Maher is talking about. There's a quote here from Isaiah 52 and Ezekiel 36. And in those passages, the prophets are talking about um, when God's people were exiled to Babylon because of their sin, and Isaiah in particular says that the name of God was despised in that case because God's people, they continually rebelled against God, and so God exiled them. But here's what happened. The Gentiles, that is, the people in the world who knew that Israel was God's people, were saying to themselves, I, I thought that God was faithful to this people. I thought he had some special plan for this people. I thought they had some special favor under God's, um, God's grace. And now they're being exiled. So what is God doing? And the Gentiles looked at that and they thought, God's not faithful to this people. This people isn't anything special. And the exile ended up causing Gentiles to despise the name of God because of the sin of God's people. And what Paul is saying here is it's exactly the same when you claim to be a religious person and you put on this outward persona and yet you have no interest in obeying Jesus. You're, you're a fan, not a follower. 
The result of that is that God's name is dishonored before the world. So the challenge here, friends, is, is this. You have to know that people are making judgments about God. They're drawing conclusions about God based on what they see in you. The world is listening. They're paying attention. They're watching your words. They're watching your actions. They know the God you claim to believe in, and the things that you do will affect what they think about God. Now, they are still responsible for what they believe and don't believe, and you're not going to be held accountable for their eternal destiny. Don't misunderstand that, but nonetheless, the principle is true. The name of God is blasphemed because of hypocrites in the church. I'd love to show this passage to Bill Maher and to say, do you see this? The Bible is saying what you're saying. But it's a challenge to us as Christians, isn't it? Here's a guy named Brennan Manning who says this, the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, walk out the door, and deny Him by their lifestyle. Might be a bit of an overstatement, but there's truth to that as the world, the Gentiles, watch and observe the way we act. So that's one of the problems with hypocrisy. It, it makes a very negative impression on the world. But there's also a problem in the church, within the walls of the church. And so in verse 25, Paul shifts gears and he begins talking about circumcision. He's been talking about the law for verses 17 through 24. And now in verse 25, he begins talking about circumcision. Now, what is that? We've been hearing about that a little bit in our Old Testament reading. Circumcision was a very important religious ritual in Old Testament Israel. It involved the cutting off of the foreskin of the male as a sign of that person's inclusion in the covenant community. It was a very important, very valued, very coveted religious ritual that God's people in the Old Testament would participate in. Now, we don't um, observe that in the church today. We practice baptism, and we believe that baptism is the replacement of circumcision. So we can see circumcision and baptism as similar in the sense that they're both very meaningful religious spiritual rituals that God's people are called to engage in. And what Paul says here in verses 25 through 27 is that the ritual is basically of no value whatsoever if you're not interested in following and obeying Jesus. So, for instance, he says this. He says the ritual, if you look on the screen, the ritual, whether it's circumcision or baptism, minus obedience, is of no value whatsoever. Verse 25, circumcision indeed is of value, but if you, if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes <clears throat> uncircumcision. It becomes of no value whatsoever. Verse 26, though, well, no, go, go back up to the screen. Ritual minus obedience equals no value. But then he goes on to say, but if there's no ritual, you haven't been circumcised, you haven't been baptized, but you are obedient, that's much better. So, verse 26, look, if a man who is uncircumcised, he hasn't had the religious ritual, but he keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Do you see what he's saying? You, you, you go through the religious ritual, you get baptized, or whatever it is, 
but you go away from that with no interest in obeying Jesus. You have no interest in obedience whatsoever. Paul says the fact that you went through the ritual is of no value whatsoever. It's totally insignificant. But if a person, now I don't think he's saying here in verse 26 that, that it's possible for a person uncircumcised or a person who hasn't been baptized to fully obey God's law. I don't think he's saying that. I don't think he's holding out this opportunity that those outside the church can obey God and be saved. It's a hypothetical argument. Say that word if, verse 26, if. If it were to be a, the case that a man who was uncircumcised would keep the law, his uncircumcision would be regarded as circumcision. That is, he would be seen as having some kind of value because he's actually doing the right thing. See, here, here's the hypocrite, and this is the problem in the church. It just tends to be this, this temptation of ours to put our hope and trust in these outward rituals and to look to those as if there's some kind of an assurance that we're okay with God. So here's what the religious hypocrite will do. They'll, they'll, they'll say in their minds, you know, I've been baptized. I responded to the altar call. I signed the commitment card that they passed out when I was 16 years old, and I answered all the questions. I went and I talked to the pastor, and I knew what he wanted to hear, and I told him what he wanted to hear. And I take the Lord's Supper, and I do this, and I do that, and I've, I've, I've jumped through all the hoops that they want me to jump through. But when I get home, I'm lashing out at my kids. I'm lashing out at my wife all the time. I'm getting drunk every weekend. I haven't opened my Bible in 10 years. It's sitting in the drawer gathering dust. I'm a serial adulterer. But I did the ritual. I, went, I, I, I got baptized. I did what they asked me to do. Everything's good. Paul is challenging that. He's saying, if that's you, you're a hypocrite. You're a hypocrite. You have no interest in doing what God has saved you to do, and that is to obey Jesus. Being baptized is no good to you whatsoever if you're going to wantonly and repeatedly break the law. Now, now one clarification here. Don't understand this to mean that baptism is of no importance because in verse 25, he says, circumcision indeed is of value. Baptism is indeed of value. Don't come away from this thinking, well, all that matters is the heart, so I don't have to go through the ritual. Well, they're, they're both important, but the ritual minus the obedience does you no good. That's what Paul's saying. So there's a problem before the world, and there's a problem in the church with hypocrisy. Very significant. Last thing we need to ask, answer, seek to answer here. How then can we be delivered from hypocrisy? Is it possible to be delivered from hypocrisy? Well, Paul is presenting this contrast between the hypocrite, that is the person who has a certain outward behavior but no inward change, that's the one person. The other person is the genuine believer, and that is the person in whom there's been an inward change that now manifests itself through outward obedience. And that's what these last couple of verses talk about in verses 28 and 29. You see what he says here? He says, the real Jew, and I want to say, or the real Christian, that is the person who belongs to God, the person who is truly saved, that person is not the one 
who has done the merely outward thing. Do you see that in verse 28? No one is a Jew, no one is a Christian who is merely one outwardly. Same thing with circumcision. Nor is circumcision outward or physical. It's not primarily an outward thing. Verse 29, the difference is the Jew, a real Jew, a real Christian, a real saved person is one inwardly. And circumcision, the outward sign, is not just an outward thing, but it's a matter of the heart. Do you see that in verse 29? It's a matter of the heart. That, that's, that's the essential point here about knowing God and being saved. It, it has to do with a heart change. What is the greatest commandment? This is what Jesus says, the greatest commandment. What is it? Love the Lord God with your whole heart, soul, mind, but your whole heart. That's the greatest commandment. I mean, when you think about that for a moment, it's like, why is that the greatest commandment? I would think maybe the greatest commandment would be, go out and feed all the poor people in the world. That sounds like a great commandment. <laughs> go and take the gospel to every corner of the earth. Go and rescue from oppression everybody who is under the thumb of his or her oppressor. Those sound like great commandments. But that's not what Jesus says is the greatest commandment. The greatest commandment is, is, is in, in a sense, it's kind of simple. Just love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Why would that be the greatest commandment? And the reason is this. Because if you do love the Lord God with your whole heart, soul, and mind, from that is going to flow a very spontaneous and natural obedience to what God has called you to do. There will finally be a sinking up of the desires of your heart and your obedience. If all you're doing is seeking to obey for outward appearances with a dead heart, there's always going to be that lack of consistency in your behavior. But if your heart is changed and your heart is filled with love for God, your deeds will follow. You will do what you love to do. You will follow the one you love the most. And that's the point that Paul is making. This is a matter of the heart. It was J. Gresham Machen that said Christianity is at its essence the religion of the broken heart. Has your heart, friends, been changed? Have you ever experienced a change of heart toward God and toward His truth? Or have you been depending on the outward ritual all your life, just clinging to your baptism as the only assurance that you're saved and righteous before God? Has your heart been changed? This, this is the only way to be delivered from hypocrisy. It's to get a new heart. And the only way to get a new heart is to believe in Jesus, to trust in Him, to look to Him to give you a new heart. Only God can do that. If you ask Him to do that, He will do that. The only way to get a new heart for God is to understand that God has a heart for you, a heart of compassion and grace and mercy. Bill Maher has nothing but contempt to offer hypocrites. God has infinite mercy and grace to offer hypocrites. We're all hypocrites. I stand before you and declare to you 
that I am a hypocrite. But I am a saved hypocrite. I am a hypocrite that believes in the blood of Jesus, and I have confidence that God is not going to condemn me because of my hypocrisy, because Jesus has died for my sins and has paid for all of my hypocrisy. That's what gives a person a changed heart. Here's what 1 John says. In this is love. It's not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. If you're overwhelmed by the hypocrisy of your life, friends, just go to Jesus. Plead with Him. Give me a new heart, God. Take my heart of stone and turn it into a heart of flesh. It's the only way to be delivered from hypocrisy. And can it be is a song we're about to sing, and I think this just sums this up well. I'm going to read just a couple of verses here because, again, it really nails it here, and then we'll stand and sing. It says, And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died He for me, for me who caused His pain, for me who Him to death pursued, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. But thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. That's it. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Thee. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Let's stand and sing to a gracious Savior. <clears throat>